Oh, looking forward to this one. 20 minutes and then some of uninterrupted talk, some fun, some info, a little debate here and there. We welcome on a mayoral candidate in 22 and 23. I was thinking you're going to have a much quieter 24, at least in terms of door knocking. People can knock on your door, not the other way around. Here's Chloe Brown, policy. Are you looking forward to a quieter 24, Chloe? Not really. I have a few projects in the pipeline. What are they? <laughs> oh, is that, that's our first topic. Because I was going to ask Steve what his what his thought is about what Chloe's projects are. No, I wasn't. Steve Pakins joining us from TVO in the maybe a quieter year for you. Uh, maybe maybe less elections, uh, less election, less five and a half hour marathon broadcast, less picket lines to what you're going to have a lot quieter. Twenty four, Steve. I feel this for you. I know what Chloe's project is. I uh, got it. You I did. Got it. It's going to be a mayoral by-election in Mississauga in May. That's what it is. That's what it is. Yes. Uh, falling, sliding right into, uh, I don't know if your shoe size is the same as Bonnie Crombie. I was going to make a joke about shoe size, but I don't know if that ends up working one way or the other. What about it, Chloe? Long, Mississauga? Well, guys, I, I lived in Port Credit for a few months, and I'd rather they're <laughs> not. That go train is really efficient getting it. I think it runs on 87, whatever Phil Verster said yesterday, 87% efficiency. Uh, he's doing yeah. he's doing a great job. Heck of a job, Brownie. All right, well, let's start here and talk about driving. Um, there's this brewing battle regarding Highway 413, and I kind of get interested, Chloe, when the federal government, the provincial government, little snipe, snipe, we don't get that often from Justin and Doug. They're like buddies. It's like they're it's like a mutually beneficial society. So it's tough language from Ontario Attorney General Doug Downey, who says, you know, there's stall tactics, outright interference about the highway getting built. This is what I thought. There's a Toronto bubble about transit in the far regions of the GTA. People do want to drive. They like to drive. We were just talking about electric vehicles and they often have to drive. And sometimes you have to drive to take transit. When you see Chloe, when you see the Ontario Attorney General kind of pushing the federal government and 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 basically saying, "Leave us alone and let us build our infrastructure." What's your thought on it? Uh, I really wish Doug Downey would focus on the court systems that are falling apart <laughs> because that's really his scope. I'd love to hear from an actual engineer on the issue of the Highway 413 because from what I've seen, the plan does not make sense. I'd rather see a group of engineers from the society tell me that this is a good project. Right now, as someone who takes go and drives to get to like Stainer, Collingwood and those areas, it's like I'd rather see investments in better go train times versus another highway project that would really screw up my commute. Yeah, there's a lot. Steve, she makes a point. And there's a lot of people that are questioning the need for it in that particular region. But I, I'd make the point also voters voted pretty heavily for the Ford government. They got a lot of union endorsement in that Brampton Peel area. They got a lot of support when it came to election time. People might want this highway, but highways always come with a price, don't they? Well, they yeah. do, but this is democracy in action. I hate to say it, people. I mean, yes, Doug Ford got a lot of the seats in that area. Uh, but Justin Trudeau obviously got enough seats in that area to maintain his uh, minority, admittedly minority mm. government in Ottawa. Uh, people are capable of having two competing thoughts in their head at the same time when they cast their ballots. And that often happens when they put liberals federally and uh, Tories provincially. Uh, we just have to watch this play itself out. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what this is about. This is democracy in action. Uh, it, it is not an unknown feature of our lives 
for the federal government to take one position on one issue representing one group of people and the provincial government taking a different position on the same issue representing a different group of people and let them have the debate and we'll just follow along and see who wins. Steve, I think they have and they have a bit of a convenient punching bag in Stephen Gilbo. The liberals are down in the polls and he's often regarded as as, you know, an extremist, if you will, by many, whether whether or not uh, that's a fair label at times, depending on what he says. It's a hat that somehow opposition parties and provincial governments have put on him and he tends to wear it. (laughs) So so they make that point. He's an he's an easy villain for the for the drive for the car driving highway building movement, isn't he? Uh, He is, and it's not just his background, which does include some moments of things that uh, perhaps you and I and Chloe have not uh, experienced, Uh, but it's also a nice feature for the Ford government anyway that he happens to represent a riding in the province of Quebec. So it's really easy to sort of take a shot at the neighbor as well, knowing that it's not going to necessarily affect you here in the province. Yeah. Chloe, I hear you on the on the transit and and it is something I wish the go was far more efficient. Again, we've all traveled. We've gone to other cities. We've seen how even in, in to, to take Amtrak in New York State or go to Europe and take Eurostar. It's remarkable what we don't have and, and what, I, what it doesn't look like we're going to have anytime soon in terms of getting across our province. It's not an easy province to travel. Yeah. And my biggest shoe is go should be going to northern Ontario. I've got a friend out in Collingwood and it's like you go to Barry Go and it's still an hour drive to get out there. So it's really an issue of who is the Ford government trying to serve here? Because there's mass volumes that you could be moving across the province and you could build economic mobility for more. The highway is just going to shave off a few minutes on the commute. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because they try to London to Toronto go. And I know there's a big push for a Kitchener to Union Station go, Chloe. But London to Toronto, there were like seven stops along the way. You'd get on at six in the morning and get to Toronto one thirty in the afternoon. So um, I've taken like I've gone into Penn Station in New York from Syracuse, from Albany. And that thing might take a couple stops, but it flies on the way there. Somehow they figured out how to do it. And we haven't yet. Japan figured out how to do magnetic trains <laughs> like I'm at this point where I really feel like we're the pilgrims of the G7. (laughs) That's a great. Hey, listen, again, don't get you may not want to run, but lend that out. Rent that out to Mart Stiles or Bonnie Crombie uh, when it comes to travel and transit in Ontario next time around. Steve, I want to get to uh, cell phones in schools and especially with uh, with with you and Chloe as well. Ontario's threatening to get a little bit tougher. I mentioned earlier the biggest thing our teachers will worry about is maybe we'd be listening to a baseball playoff game on a transistor radio or we'd have a. Rolling Stone magazine or a Sports Illustrated in our maybe the swimsuit issue in our desk. That was the biggest issue of distraction the teachers had with us. So when I hear from teachers now, I don't know how they do it. Chromebooks, cell phones, earbuds. I have no idea how they didn't force some of this stuff, even though we already have a cell phone ban and nobody seems to notice that we do, Steve. Yeah, I, I think the issue here is that when the notion of technology in the classroom first came about, Uh, Naturally, we all saw the positives. We all saw the potential of students having that tool available to them and doing whatever research, um, looking into a subject more deeply in the course of a class, using it for constructive purposes. And we thought, wouldn't that be marvelous? Uh, Take advantage of this technology that people uh, your age, my age, uh, never got a chance to do. On the other hand, Greg, I'm a big fan of following empirically provable facts. And the empirically provable facts here are that's not what's happening. And talk to any teacher. You just know that's not what's happening. It's a complete distraction now. They're on Facebook. They're on Threads. They're on uh, X. They're on uh, TikTok. Uh, They are completely wasting their time on those things. And teachers, uh, I hear it all the time, they can't do anything about it. 
it seems like if you follow empirically provable facts, it's time to move in and stop this because we're going to we're going to have a whole generation of kids in the classroom who are just going to be abusing themselves to death, as that Neil Postman uh, book title suggested, and they won't learn anything. And we can't have that. Chloe, you're um, I'm going to be kind to Steve and myself because uh, Christmas is coming. You're a touch younger than uh, Steve and myself. Um, and, and so but <laughs> but you've been in school, college and high school in a more uh, modern technological era. If you go back, what was it like for you, whether in, in college and high school with regards to technology? Were there distractions? Were people bringing phones into the classrooms? Absolutely. It was. <laughs> Back then in 2000, it was more of a (laughs) communication tool and you had to pay per text. So there was something that stopped you from over communicating. But I will say that there was also more investment in schools. We're using technology Mm -hmm. as a substitute to really outsource that labor. And as we see decades of underinvestment in the human resources, that is teachers, of course, you're going to see kids substituting that interaction with the technology. And this is where... Like, uh, again, the government should be bringing back shop class, home ec, like deeply investing in music programs. Because when I was a kid, I really had like after school band. I was in volleyball. I was really deep into extracurriculars. I didn't have time to be on my phone. So this is where it's like we really have to hold the government to account on how they're investing in our kids so that they're not using their phones to substitute for us. And that's what's really missing the equation, us as the adults. It's so interesting you say that. And I, I know you went to uh, then Ryerson, now TMU. We did a campus tour with, with my kid due for university next year. And you walk past classrooms, Chloe, and you'd see a teacher at the front. But then you've got 20 people looking at their screens. And I'm assuming they're writing what the teacher, what the professor's saying. I'm assuming they're looking at some kind of study aid for the course. <laughs> but if I'm the teacher, I'm like, how many of these? I've told my kid in high school, I'm like, keep your eyes on the teacher. Don't be buried in your Chromebook. Make sure that you're focused. Because they're going to go, that's not an A student if they're not looking at me, paying attention and being engaged, right? Absolutely. And this is where it becomes really serious for us to reinvest in human resources because intergenerational relationships between older and younger generations are deteriorating. Instead of mm. like young people going to their neighbor to learn a skill, they're going to YouTube because they don't know their neighbor. And this is where, yeah, communities are falling apart because the online communities are more honest. They're more like responsive and that's where government is failing. It's not honest and responsive. So I'm going to trust a bunch of people online as opposed to the people who live locally. So yeah, we need to do a better job at, I don't know, advocating Mm. for in, in school engagement, because right now it's like, I have a niece and nephew who's six and seven. They have tablets that they use at school. This is an issue of like they're not enough education assistance to help the teachers. So it's really us as mm. like, adults, godparents, aunts and uncles. We need to be like, hey, can you invest in our friends that are teachers so that we can get our kids off the phones? Chloe brings up that interaction, Stephen. That's my recollection. High school textbooks. I forgot my textbook today. Can I borrow yours? Can, you know, you'd, you'd buy a whole set of textbooks brand new and try and keep them in decent shape so you could resell them at the end of that particular university year. Like we have really lost that experience with our youth. And you know what? I remember once giving a guest lecture at a class at the University of Toronto on the downtown campus. And I got in there, and it's probably the first time I'd been with a group of students in a classroom in, I don't know what, 25, 30 years or something. 
And I started to talk, and all the laptops came out, and the screens opened up, and they started pitter-patter, pitter-pattering away, <laughs> taking notes on what I was saying, but nobody was looking at me. <laughs> Everybody had their face in their screens, and I found it impossible to make a connection with these young people because I just didn't feel, you know, I wasn't feeling it. And um, I, that just felt wrong to me. Now, maybe I'm an old fuddy-duddy for thinking that way, but I'm totally with Chloe on that issue of engagement. How do you get engaged between a university professor or a college professor and the students when they've got their faces in their screens and they're not even looking at you and they're five feet away from you. I don't know how that's done. Yeah. And now, the, and now for those uh, baseball play afternoon playoff games, Steve, they're not listening on transistor radio. They're watching it on MLB.com. So you've totally lost high def, all the highlights, all the stats, their fantasy league. Again, these damn kids today. Uh, well, it's the tickets too, if I have to be honest, because you could afford tickets back then. Now you have to fight for season opener. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Otani tax isn't coming in, so that's oh. a good thing. I think you know. I'm sure the premier and the mayor would have weighed in on that as to uh, as to you know, uh, 81 Shohei Otani games a year for the next 10 years. Uh, Olivia Chow can dine out on that. Uh, as the mayor that brought to Shohei Otani to Toronto. I want to get to Ontario corner stores and gas stations selling beer, selling wine. Chloe Brown, we just talked about the travel. We've gone to Europe. We've gone to the United States. Um, we can make the case their societies didn't implode because you could wander over to a corner store and get a bottle of wine if you were having a dinner date. But we just have been archaic. You called us pilgrims earlier. We've been pilgrims about this. That's for sure. Do you think this is a bad thing that this is happening now? No, I think we're at an age where we're done getting rowdy for the sake of drinking and we actually enjoy the taste of it. Also, <laughs> we're seeing this turn with Gen Z where they're not drinking as much. So I think it's about time to give the people the chance to prove their adulthood. Mm. As I said, our night culture is very Puritan, very pilgrim, and it's about time to just get into an age where we can like manage ourselves yeah, it's Steve, I had a listener yesterday text in and we started to talk about this. This announcement, by the way, from Doug Ford's government should come on Thursday. But he made the point. He goes, Greg, I can walk 800 meters and, and there's four different pot shops, but I have to drive to get a bottle of wine or a tall boy can. Like there is something that's changed from our youth where the one substance was OK and the other one was uh, was the drug of the devil, basically. Like we've got to come into the 21st century here and it looks like we're going to. I am going to tell you a story, nice brief little story here, about the 1985 Ontario election campaign, which I covered as a cub reporter for another radio station in town. And I went to a corner store where uh, candidate David Peterson, who was not yet the premier, but would be after the election was over, where David Peterson stood with a man named Martin Baranek. And they were at his Keel Street corner store, and David Peterson said, you know, I think people ought to be able to walk into a corner store and buy a two for a beer. And I'm going to make sure that that happens. Now, he meant well when he made that promise. <laughs> and so has every single subsequent premier who's tried to open it up. And in fairness, it has opened up somewhat. But it is an indication of the power of the brewers that this has not happened yet. It is an indication of how logistically difficult this may be, which is why it hasn't happened yet. Funnily enough, I saw Martin Baranek numerous times over the years. We just ended up, you know, funnily enough, traveling in the same circles on some occasions. And every year or two, I'd bump into him and I'd say, Martin, they still haven't done it. They still haven't done it. Even if you still, I mean, he'd be long retired. He'd be in his 80s, long retired. And I'd say, Martin, they still haven't done it. 
But there you go. And maybe finally coming this Thursday, but we will see. And uh, and yeah, again, this is a Steve and Greg gang up against uh, Chloe the Younger. Chloe, these beers were called stubbies back then. Smaller, <laughs> like I'm not trying to be self-conscious about this. They were yeah. stubby. They were, they were more, they weren't the tall boys that we see now. Put it that way. The beer bottles were a little different in 1985, weren't they, Steve? Bottles. Yeah, the tall boys aren't even that tall anymore. They're dude. not. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so we'll see. All right. See, and, and, and we got it on record. Chloe, Chloe Brown supports, uh, strongly supports a Doug Ford policy. We're waiting. All right. Let's get to uh, Greg Fergus, Speaker of the House. And Steve, I want to start with you because you're on the floor. The liberal uh, announcement of the leadership um, about 10 days ago, nine days ago now, 10 days ago. Um, and uh, and Greg Fergus, Speaker of the House, liberal MP, broadcasts uh, a, a goodbye message, in essence, for John Fraser. He's not leaving politics, but he makes a, a warm message for John Fraser, then the Ontario interim liberal leader. And it became a thing. And the conservatives jumped on it. Is this just politics or did Fergus actually make a mistake? And, and if you can have any sort of anecdote from that Saturday, did that tickle your spidey sense at all that it was something he wasn't supposed to do? You know, the funny thing is, and I hate to I hate to admit this on your radio show, it did not tickle my spidey sense. Me neither. In hindsight, in hindsight, I, I, I'm kind of mad at myself that it didn't because uh, this is clearly over the line. And the reason I know it's clearly over the line is that it, there's unanimity in Parliament that it's over the line. Even his liberal colleagues, his former uh, liberal colleagues, since he's now supposed to be so independent, uh, have agreed that this was a big mistake. Uh, the one thing he says about this that I think could be mitigating, could be a little bit mitigating, he says he thought he was just doing this for John Fraser personally, and he didn't realize this was going to be shown at a big convention uh, where you know hundreds, if not thousands of people could see it because – it did get broadcast uh, online as well. <sighs> does, does that help his case a little bit? Maybe a little bit, but he also acknowledged that at the end of the day, if he just hadn't have done it, this wouldn't have been a problem. And he now acknowledges he shouldn't have done it. But will he lose his job over it? That's what I'm waiting to see. Chloe, what's your thought uh, on this? We've seen way worse in the House of Commons in terms of behavior and name calling. And I would even mention obfuscating and not actually answering anything, playing politics. Does this look like an honest mistake from the House of Commons speaker? Honestly, it's one of those things that rattles my brain because it's such a from the time he got into now, it's like one of the shortest community victories I've ever experienced. And I really hope that he doesn't lose his position, but he issues a formal apology because, yes, it does seem a little bit shady to me, but it's also very naive of him to not think it would have had an impact. So, yeah, just hoping that the scales of justice will be balanced on this because I just want politics to move forward at this point. You mentioned the victory. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve, because I was going to follow up on that. Go right ahead. I think Chloe's made a really uh, important point here, which is that the, the country had an opportunity to feel really good about itself when the former speaker who made that egregious mistake in inviting, okay, we know the whole story about that with uh, President Zelensky. Right and Anthony Rota, right? Anthony Rota, right, from, yeah. from up in North Bay. The country had a chance to feel really good about itself by replacing that guy whose judgment was really egregious in that case with the first ever black speaker in Canadian history. And we thought... Yeah. This is terrific. This is a good news moment, and, and we could all sort of enjoy that moment. And it would be sad if his moment ended this quickly. 
But, of course, it's really up to him and it's up to this committee that's looking into him right now to see whether or not he'll be forgiven and whether he can reclaim his sense of independence in the House of Commons or whether he's got to go. And I wrestle with that, Chloe, because you mentioned that um, Greg Fergus becoming speaker on October 3rd of this year. And I wrestle with are the conservatives just playing politics or are they actually this is the process. This is the regulation. We all have workplaces. We all have standards and codes of conduct. And if this was deemed egregious, Somebody might actually feel that strongly emotionally about it, or they're playing politics and, and looking to uh, looking to for a gotcha moment. I can't figure it out yet. Yeah, and that's why this whole thing feels shady, because there are so many larger issues that they could be worrying about. My bigger issue is there was a there was a vote at Parliament and Pierre Polyev was at a fundraiser and he came back like a drunken frat boy with mcdonald's well Well, we can't we can't prove he was in a frat or drunken but yes i get what you're saying it was one in the morning i'll give it i'll give you that much yes it was bigger issues of decorum that i wish they would focus on Yeah, I think that we've all we've all had a case of the munchies at 1 a.m. after uh, after a House of Commons vote that we're watching on CPAC. Um, All right, let's get let's get to the big thing. I'm dying to know about this. I'm a big Kevin Costner fan. We were just watching uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves in our house the other day. He's not very good. Robin Hood. The accent sounds like he's uh, he just got off a surfboard in Malibu and not 11th century England. But whatever. He's he's uh, dating Jewel. Do you guys ever, Chloe, do you ever look at a celebrity pair and you're like, you know what? I want this to work. I want this to happen. I want them to find happiness. There's a 19-year age gap. I'm not saying that's how it should be when you're 68 and she's 49, but I like this couple. What do you think? I wish Kevin Costner all the best. He was the bodyguard. (laughs) (laughs) I could never wish anything else but the best for him. Uh, Whitney Houston told me that, so... (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy for Kevin Costner, and I really just, I love to see older couples dating because so many things happen in your life, and it's a very hard thing as someone 32 to try to date. I can only imagine what it feels like at 60. I, yeah, I, I think I think there wasn't a big, uh, I don't think Jewel was on Tinder, Steve, whatever that is, and Kevin found her on, uh, on there per se, but uh, you know, again, he's got seven kids. Two marriages. He's just coming out of a coming out of the maelstrom of a divorce. Um, Jewel Jewel has some nice acoustic songs to soothe him. Maybe this will work. Maybe. Uh, I, I'm trying really hard to care a lot about this story, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm I'm sorry that you're not succeeding. Although the one area I will say, you know what I think about baseball, and this is the guy after all who is the star of Field of Dreams, and he did yeah. such a lovely job in that movie. And I always cry at the end, so I guess I can root for Kevin Costner, even though he's 19 years older than her. I mean. How, how, does this relationship really have any legs if he's 19 years older than she is? I mean, nobody's forcing her into this relationship. There's not there's not some contract involved with the. Oh, right? there'll be a contract. Trust me. Well, yeah, so that's probably true. That's probably true to some extent. And by the way, you mentioned Field of Dreams. Maybe she's a big JFK fan or not, because if, if she said to Kevin Costner, who was Jim Garrison and JFK, hey, listen, I, I just it's nice to I hope this works out. But I think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Maybe it's over then. Well, he said Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in Field of Dreams, and then the <laughs> other, you know. <laughs> I think that was Bull Durham. You're getting your that's Bull Durham. They they said that in. You're right. I'm completely all mixed up there. Yeah. And, and Chloe, we can't go back to that time space continuum. I was a big Bobby Brown fan. I love that Don't Be Cruel album. That's like that's an artist at the peak of his powers. 
and I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not that Whitney and Bobby were were doomed, but maybe if Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston start dating in 1992, maybe she's oh playing Bud Stage this summer. I'm going to lay that you out there so, for all three you, of us. You are so pushing this. You are just so <laughs> way out over your skis on this one, Brady. I don't know where you're going. You can tell it's mid-December, and uh, and we're, uh, we're, yeah, we're in that holiday giddy mood, like drunken frat boys and, and, and sorority girls, feels like. you got a dream in this economy. That's the, all you can afford. I, I think so, Chloe. Hey, l- great to have you both on this morning. Loved it. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a good one. See you, Chloe.